Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 97, the one about public speaking basics, the future of AI, and Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome all the way from La France, Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much. You've just heard from a man who's also on a mission to keep marketing simple. The voice of the Marketing Fans podcast and the host of the Rockdog video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards from Scotland. Oh, Pascal, and this is episode 97. We are creeping ever closer to the magic 100 episodes. And today, we've got a packed show as always. We've got lots of content to talk about, but we're also talking about a new film which had its premiere in London yesterday. And I was in London and I didn't even know this premiere was happening, Pascal. Oh my goodness. Listen, we're going to talk about the marketing of Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Now listen, when you and I launched this podcast three years ago, we wanted to do something a little, you know, crazy, combining marketing from B2B, B2C, or people to people. We wanted to bring pop culture, gaming, tech. And we thought we might get away from time to time to bring the 80s in particular, our love for Dungeons and Dragons role playing games, but no way did I even imagine that we would talk about a film that was uh, f- um, started in 2021. We actually got the news that they were filming in Annick and not far from you and I at the time during the pandemic. And we'd be waiting nearly two years for this movie to be released. Yeah, and I know very little about it. I mean, I obviously know what Dungeons & Dragons is. I played Dungeons & Dragons (laughs) a lot back in the 80s, as you've said, but I know very little about the the movie, so I'm going to be really interested to get into that. And I know you've done an absolute stack of research and uncovered some astonishing visuals for this film. So the film marketing section of today's show is going to be fantastic. But before we get to film marketing, we've got a lot of other ground to cover. So shall we start, as we always do, with In the News? Days after the UK government banned TikTok on work forms, the BBC has heard staff to delete the Chinese owned social media platform from corporate devices over privacy and security fears. Diageo has launched a global campaign for rum brand Captain Morgan as it looks to make responsible drinking a social and cultural norm. Enjoy Slow features singer and rapper Bree Runway performing a slowed down version of 1990s classic Rhythm of the Night. I do like that song. John Lewis is exploring a potential move away from its 100% staff ownership model. In a bid to drive investment, the high street brand hopes to raise up to £2 billion by selling a minority stake in the business. Leaders at 3UK have admitted the business is unsustainable without mergers to Vodafone as it's spending more than it's earning. Well, Visit Britain and Visit England helped to boost visitor spend by £673 million between April 21 and June 22, thanks to dedicated marketing campaigns suggesting that international tourism is showing signs of continued strong recovery. Greg's ranks as the strongest brand in the restaurant sector globally, according to Brand Finance. Wow. Well, Jemison's new global campaign, Arrive Like a Local, in partnership with Irish Distillers, will be exclusive to global travel retail and is launching at over 35 airports. 
And finally, the artificial intelligence company OpenAI has released GPT-4, its latest version of the AI system which powers ChatGTP, which made headlines when it was launched at the end of 2022. Now, Pascal, all of these news items are worthy of of a lot of discussion i actually had a lot of difficulty narrowing it down to three that i want to talk about i mean the john lewis thing is fascinating because the the staff ownership model is one thing that they are absolutely renowned for you know they they get so many plaudits from him you know from uh people who review styles of employment and styles of company structure for the way that they've uh, built their business but we'll 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 not dwell upon them today I did want to talk about TikTok because it's 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 a sort of marmite thing, isn't it? This TikTok, and obviously there's all this potential hoo-ha of all the security breaches potentially, and the fact that it's Chinese owned, and is there some sort of Chinese conspiracy to harvest all the data of the people that are using it, etc., uh, etc. Et I know that a lot of it has been banned from parts of the United States. I mean, I have to say, it doesn't seem to me stupid to say to government people, don't use TikTok on a work phone. I mean, when I was in big corporate, my work phone just had email and uh, the the sort of um, internal email system and uh, website on it. That was it. They wouldn't let us put anything on. So I can understand why a government mobile probably shouldn't have TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, or anything on it just in case. But what do you think? Is this really a problem, or is it just some some conspiracy theory like any other conspiracy theory that we've heard over the last few years, some of which are utterly insane? Well, I mean, to your point, I'm pretty sure I posted on LinkedIn earlier this week about, because it was the, the, the news was more like, I was thinking, well, Looking back in my days in corporate, our IT policy was so stringent that would have never happened. You know, people putting yeah. social media or apps without, you know, getting checked by the IT department because of security. Because I mean, literally, the combination mobile phone and social media app is just a perfect combination for for crime to happen, from mm-hmm. stealing your data to taking over. And when you work in government and when you work in corporate, it is known that there is a, a way for your phone to listen in, even if it is turned off. Yeah. I remember my younger brother was working for quite a um, famous uh, fruit producer in France, and they were told to leave their phones um, at their desk if they went into a meeting room, and the meeting room had been actually uh, designed to cut the noise because they, they had evidence that the competition could listen in. Yeah. So you, you begin with just that, and then add on to that, obviously, a foreign power who is not particularly you know, well-known for their approach to privacy, to kind of, um, you know, everything else that would, would come with it. Uh, interestingly, at the time of recording, we're 24 hours um, after the CEO of TikTok having to address the US Senate and answering a, n- a number of questions. But what people are saying is because of the, the, the position is, it is already essentially breaching data, data privacy and security. The questioning was actually very imbalanced. There was no attempt to learn about what really happens at TikTok mm-hmm. and their link with the Chinese government. It was more, I have decided that you are essentially wrong, and let me therefore question you in a manner in which is going to confirm my current position. Mm-hmm. So it was very difficult for the general public to know by the end of the questioning whether or not TikTok is guilty of 
of malpractice. It just knew that a bunch of people didn't like them there very much. And then the defense from TikTok, and I have some sympathy saying, well, why us and not YouTube or, or Facebook or Meta for that matter, who have misbehaved um, in the past? So people are saying, is this some form of um, uh, practitionism? You know, if you protect the the interests of the US mm-hmm. by essentially with false uh, accusation. And the challenge, uh, Roger, is that we will never know because unless TikTok can reveal all, um, we'll never know. But on, on the basis that, uh, you know, from a, because my memory is the IT policy that I had as a young uh, kind of um, employee, they were so astringent. That would have been a conversation. You would, you, you would not have TikTok on your uh, business phone. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, it does. I, I agree with you about the Senate thing. It, it does feel as if they're guilty until proven innocent, which is definitely not the way to do it. But then again, you know, maybe they should have been a bit more open, as indeed, as you say, should have um, Meta and the others should have been a bit more open about some of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. Now, what do you think, Pascal, about Greg's? ranking as the strongest brand in the restaurant sector now i was actually quite flabbergasted when i read this because i had just assumed that it would be something like mcdonald's or burger king or one of the other big american you know food chains like um kentucky fried chicken or or wendy's or something like that but good old-fashioned british greggs and for any from anybody who's listening to the show who isn't from the uk greggs is pretty much on every single high street in the United Kingdom um, and and sometimes on each on every high street many many times and it's a, a sandwich shop but you can buy you can buy pies you can buy um, pasties you can buy all sorts of food and uh, it, it's the sort of place that people will go for to lunch if they are working in an office they'll go to Greg's but I'd never classed it in the category of you know a, a, a restaurant global brand. I just thought it was a British thing, but here we are. Greg's ranking as the biggest restaurant sector brand globally. Wow, it's brilliant, isn't it? But actually, you've got to recognise that they have worked very hard and very cleverly on their brand for many, many years. So for me, that's the results of maybe decades, but certainly the last ten years. If you think about the coup of being one of the catering brand for the 2012 Olympic Games to be present at airport, which is probably the link there as well. And what I like about Greg's is that they have essentially crafted the, um, you know, the sandwiches that they have a unique taste and they have a unique recipe. The bread is unique to theirs as well, because everything is done obviously in house and, and the range of pie, which is leaning into sometimes uh, regional, regional culture and, and preferences. So, that, so, so they know who they are. And they have claimed that that space, and they do an enormous amount of work with charities as well, breakfast clubs and the likes with, with schools, and and I think to me that's just what it takes, you know. That so essentially they've become a almost like an overnight sensation. It's taken them twenty years, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and they have some lovely little touches. And again, I recently I was reading an article on how Greg's works, and I didn't even know this, but when you actually learn about it, you realize it's absolutely beautiful. But they have this whole range of bakes and pies and everything. You can buy a steak bake, you can buy a chicken bake, there's a cheese, but cheese and onion bake, meat pie, whatever you want. And each of their pies has a different pattern. 
actually on the the pastry. And A, it, it means that the staff can recognize, because let's face it, a pie looks like a pie, doesn't it? Unless you know. But the staff will know well, that's a steak bake because it's got that pattern. That's a chicken bake because it's got that pattern. But, of course, all the patterns look appealing and uh, draw people in as well. So absolutely gorgeous piece of um, sort of um, subliminal marketing going on there, which actually helps the staff be more efficient. I think I think it's fabulous. And, and finally, I, 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 I did wonder whether to bring this one up, Pascal, but I, in the end, I just had to. Chat GTP, my goodness, now they've released a more up-to-date version that's even cleverer. And the world seems to have gone Chat GTP crazy at the moment, or at least the marketing world has gone Chat GTP crazy at the moment. Every single article I read about these days is somebody coming up with a course on how to use Chat GTP, oh, or God, here, yes. are, here are 5,000 prompts to make your use of chat gtp better there are people who let's face it two years ago they were nft experts last year they were metaverse experts and now they're chat gtp marketing people we're embarrassing ourselves here chat gtp will have its uses but you're setting the scene here for mediocrity and all of these people who are ramming on about chat gtp you're talking yourself out of a job you're you're creating a scenario where potentially you know an agency con- conversation might be imagine a corporate finds out that its agency is using chat gtp so well, why do we need the agency by all means we need to find a way of of harnessing maybe the mundane tasks that this can take over but for goodness sake it seems to me that we're wishing away our creative ability to to be human and to create human stuff and and passing it over to this machine don't get so excited about it you know let's just tone down the hype a bit am i overreacting no, and I'm going to keep my reply very short because of my selection for this week's <laughs> content spotlight. But but ultimately, um, it is tiresome for you and I to observe, you know, over the decade, our profession being essentially always summarized by a hack or a trick or a mm. shortcut or mm. a cheat, whether mm. it's been um, SEO, whether it's social media, email marketing, particularly the digital stuff. And and for me, you know, you would not dream of having this conversation for things like legal services or HR or finance. I mean, you can imagine someone says to you, I'll do your tax return, but that won't be me. I'll ask an AI to do that for you. I'm going to build a case to defend yourself against, basically, an injustice done to you. Um, I don't know what it is about marketing and sales in particular, whereby people literally, as you know, have observed over time, oh, look, I've got PowerPoint on my computer, therefore I'm going to start to present well. And this kind of strange link between access to technology that can f- accelerate the, the appearance of an output, equal um, skills and intelligence. And and I think um, through your point, and I've been talking about this and with others, by the way, um, about this idea of when you are part of the silent majority are you also part of the problem and do we need to be a bit more robust and be more vocal and warning people because one thing that is very tiresome as well is the targeting of adverts so 
because you now do things like the show notes for two gigs I'm out in podcast. Now my my feed on Instagram in particular and and Facebook is full of um, idiots who are just moving their hands around, pointing different part of the screen to list the top ten AI solutions. Now let's put it this way. I've gone ahead with the benefit of the doubt. So, okay, well, maybe maybe there's something else. I've, I've gone ahead and I tested someone's 10 recommended AI uh, platforms, and they were all rubbish. I mean, to the point <laughs> where it was not usable in the business context. It was maybe amusing in the social context, but not usable. And I've discovered little by little that those individuals, the one that you are mentioning here today, they don't even use the AI platform that, that they talk about. So, yeah, you're right. We need to start to a, be the voice of reason, warn people, but just say, and, and by the way, can I just also mention for, for you and I, the challenge is that we've been mentioning AI-powered solutions for uh, at least in, since 2016, when Google did the demonstration of, of Google AI during Google um, I.O., more acronyms there. So it's also very hard for you now to be excited because we've known about it for seven years now. Yeah, and I mean, let's face it, let's face it. We very rarely hear about NFTs anymore. <laughs> and those people who were NFTs experts two years ago, they went on to the metaverse. Let's face it, we very rarely hear about the metaverse anymore. And it seems that Facebook have realized what a complete arse they've made of that, and they've moved on. So I'm hoping that give it another six months to a year, and all these idiots that have jumped onto the chat GTP bandwagon will also have moved on to whatever the next thing will come around. One thing I would just want to finish this section off in, please everybody, if somebody comes along and tells you that they're an expert in something, check it out. You know, Pascal and I, without wanting to blow our own trumpets, and I don't think we'd blow our own trumpets uh, enough to be perfectly honest, Pascal, but we've been doing marketing for over 25 years. It takes a long time to become expert in something. ChatGTP launched towards the back end of 2022. We're only in the third month of 2023. It is not possible for somebody to be an expert in something that's only been around for a couple of months. It's lunacy to think that they can be experts in that sort of thing. And if they aren't experts, then there's got to be something going on and they're probably trying to take advantage. So be wary of people who call themselves experts check out to find out whether they really are. No, absolutely. Thank you very much, Roger. So with that little rant over, let's move on. Let's slow things down a little bit and we'll move on to content spotlights. Well, in this part of the show, Pascal and I focus in on a piece of content that we found. It could be a video, it could be an article, it could be a podcast. So Pascal, what have you got in the spotlight for us this week? Well, as I ended a moment ago, uh, earlier, this is about AI. And this article written for Business Insider was written by Grace Mayer, probably one of our youngest content creators and journalists introduced on Content Spotlight. She recently got an award, actually, for her amazing work. And the article is as follows. Bill Gates just published a seven-page letter about AI and his predictions for its future. And two things I wanted to kind of highlight, because this news has been covered now by all platforms you can think of, um, and not just Business Insider, but hey, you know, there's nothing like being the first out of the gate. So point of view of speed of execution, that's number one for, for great. But also she was able to compile a summary that felt that was really in her own true voice. So 
you know, let's continue how we, we began. I'm seeing now evidence that people are using ChatGPT and all the others, and this simple copy and paste job in. And I've got nothing against research, but you need to write in your own voice. And Grace is doing that. So she's doing an amazing job to summarize seven-page document by probably one of the most famous and influential individual in the world of tech and online communication which means that her article is interesting in its own right. And of course, she closes the link to the full version where you can go on Bill Gates' um, official website. Um, so my comment, because we always look for ways which we can be inspired by others and learn, is in in your industry, viewers and listeners, there will be essentially um, those figures who were there at the very, very start. And I think to the point that you made earlier, Roger, I'd rather listen to what Bill Gates has to say that someone who discovered AI and had to be essentially good on a keyboard a few months ago because what you need is a sense of history. You need to know where you've come from to know where this is going, which is why you and I like to do this week in history um, in particular. So when we look at the, the article written by Grace, she reminds all of us, of course, about you know who Bill Gates is and talks about this idea of what is written is called the age of AI has begun. And then she goes into summarizing the key elements of the article. So Bill Gates kind of... Uh, business case, if you will, for using AI is still about productivity, which was a business case 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when it began in the 70s and the 80s. And he believe that this is all about um, improving global inequities. So what he's warning about very, very quickly is that this is maybe once and for all our chance as a global society to close the gap between the have the have nots point of view of access to knowledge and information. And he's warning that sadly, because of the history of market forces, we're going to put the situation where there would be very, very clever, very useful, even life-saving AI solutions that would be only accessible by those who have the money or the means to access it. And I think it's, this is a, a kind of um, call to arms, a rallying call from Bill Gates about all the big platforms to try and find a way to make sure this is happening well. He's talking about productivity in the workplace, in the healthcare, and in education. And, and his, his contention would be that this is really what we should be aspiring to, which is every single person in the world, no matter who they are, no matter their wealth, will have access to a digital personal assistant that can accelerate, obviously, the, um, you know, the, 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 the tasking of things, but access to information, including including health. So you kind of read the, this summary, and what she's done, therefore, is is really move away from the white noise of um, you know I've, I've spoken about, which makes actually in its own right fascinating to want to read the, the, the seven page um, document. So I'm not going to say any more than that because I want people to read obviously um, her article, Grace May, but also the seven page document. For me, it takes me back to something that we mentioned on the, This Week in History, which was the facts that Bill Gates wrote in 95 about the internet. And it, you know this this almost urban legend now, where allegedly was the back of his car using one of the early laptops, and he typed essentially. I think it was called the tidal wave of the internet. He was telling his colleagues, "We need to be um, embracing this, but in in the in the right way." So I'm just going to close very very quickly with I suppose words from Bill Gates himself, taken from the seven page um, document, where he says, "I'm lucky to have been involved with the PC revolution and the internet revolution." 
I am just as excited about this moment. This new technology can help people everywhere improve their lives. At the same time, the world needs to establish the rules of the road so that any downsides of artificial intelligence are far outweighed by its benefits and so that everyone can enjoy these benefits no matter where they live or how much money they have. The age of AI is filled with opportunities and responsibilities. I mean, that sounds like wisdom, doesn't it? <laughs> That's what you want. You Absolutely. want wisdom. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, I quite like, I mean, the theme that struck me there is that what he's saying is that, yes, let's use AI to remove remove those sort of repetitive and boring tasks that, let's face it, blight a lot of people's lives, to free them up to be more creative. But what I'm seeing happening at the moment is that people seem to be wanting to use AI to stifle creativity or even to sweep creativity aside. Um, and that's not the right direction for us to go in. But I'm not going to have another rant about um, AI, um, Pascal, more, other than to say, you know, I think Bill Gates has had a bad bad press over the last few years. All these utterly, utterly insane conspiracy theories about, you know, the vaccine being about injecting nanobots into people and Bill Gates has got some sort of um, conspiracy mm. theory to take over the world. I mean, for goodness sake, I was reading one the other day where this woman has been for her um, COVID vaccination and afterwards she said she was rubbing the spot where the um, where the injection had taken place and she felt a bit of a lump. Now, let's face it, we all get a bit of a lump after we have a, a injection and she squeezed this lump and eventually this little device came out and she and she published a photograph of herself in with this thing in the palm of her hand and if you actually zoom in it it's one of those things that you have in a bicycle tire the bit where you actually put the um uh the bicycle pump in to blow the tire up i think what are you doing you know this is insane but people believe this stuff it's absolutely mad so bill gates it's like I said, he's been around a long time. He is an expert in these sort of things. And his predictions are often very, very well thought out and often very accurate. So let's start listening to real experts rather than the experts that were born in the last three months. So Pascal, let me talk to you this week about public speaking. I came across this article in the Entrepreneur magazine. It's called Remember These Seven Public Speaking Basics When Presenting Overseas mm -hmm. by a gentleman called Joseph Liu. Now, I, I did read that the headline was what grabbed me on this. And I read the article and thought, I'm not sure I'm going to do this as a content spotlight. And then the penny dropped and I thought, oh, actually, yes, I am going to do this. Now, obviously, um, before the pandemic, my speaking career had taken me abroad quite often and, and particularly to Eastern Europe. I'd spent quite a lot of time in companies like Montenegro, North Macedonia, um, the Czech Republic, Serbia. Romania, Crikey, when I start reeling off, that was it was quite quite a little uh, like little trip, and obviously when you go and speak in a different country, you've got to take into consideration that there will be cultural differences. You know, not only the fact that they don't speak English as their main language can often be an issue. I, I remember the first time I went to Montenegro, I was sat on the aeroplane. In fact, this is in the introduction of Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans. It had such a profound effect on me. I was sat on the plane thinking, what on earth are you doing? Flying to a country where English isn't their first language to talk about marketing. And I got really quite 
imposter syndrome doubt by this and of course when i arrived and i had this massively warm welcome from the folks in montenegro the speech went well i actually found out that most of them could speak english better than me it didn't matter uh you know but on the way i think there's all these things you've got to take into consideration so that's why i decided to dig a little bit deeper into this article and and then i came to a pretty sort of penny drop um, solution. So, so basically, he's saying that you know, if if you go and speak abroad, you're going to have to you're going to have to think about all sorts of different things culturally. So it, it's no it's no um, surprise to find that the first of his tips is know your audience. And again, that's where you've got to take into consideration the culture. It's not only the language, as I've said, and 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 what you should also do. And and um, and I found this out when I went to Montenegro and North Macedonia is are they using a sort of translation service where the audience can have headphones or something so that it it uh, translates into their language as you speak you know that might be important should you learn some of your speech in the local language um you know now if i was to come and do a a, a seminar in france i could probably speak a little bit of French. I did do French A-level a long time ago, and I can sort of understand quite a bit of French if it's said to me. I find it harder to actually speak it back. But there are some languages, you know, like Chinese and Japanese, which is phonetically a lot harder to grasp, and you might struggle to do that. But it's something to think about. So so know your audience, and, and how do you need to adapt your presentation to for the for the um the vagaries of that particular audience then the second one obviously arrive as early as possible and again this is <laughs> um, you know if you're traveling abroad you've got to factor in jet lag you've got to factor in time zones you've got to factor in the fact that the plane might be late so don't leave it to arrive on the morning of your presentation for mm. goodness sake arrive a day or two earlier if you're traveling a long way if you're going through various time zones maybe arrive a couple of days before so that you've got chance to get over the jet lag before the presentation happens or at least arrive a couple of days and spend some time getting to know the, the culture of the city that you're presenting in, learning a bit about it. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you did that and you were able to inject a few comments about what you've seen into your presentation? Um, so so that's worth thinking about. A lot of people, again, you know, I'm, I get on a train, I'll arrive, I'll do the presentation, and then I'll get back on a train or a plane and I'm disappearing. Give yourself the time. And... The next couple again were, were were just a little bit obvious to me, and I thought oh, this is possibly one of the reasons why I wouldn't focus in this as a um, a, a content spotlight. Like, do your best to adapt. You know, the things might um, go wrong on the day. The tech might not work. It's a different country. Sometimes different countries have different. Um, um, power supplies don't they the difference between 50 hertz and 60 hertz can sometimes mess up a presentation you've got to be careful um sometimes countries have different customs around drinking uh, events and things like that some con you know, the, the fourth one he talks about is taking feedback on board now if you do a presentation in the United Kingdom, have you ever, I'm sure, sure Pascal, like me, you've found this when you say, has anybody got any questions, anybody got any feedback, and the audience just sits there, no hands go up. Part of that is that as a culture, people in the UK are a little bit reticent to put in their hands up at an event, and they're very unlikely. It might come after, to, 
speak to you afterwards and, and give you some feedback or ask you a question afterwards. But sometimes people are a little bit reticent to do that. But in some countries, if you say, has anybody got any questions, you might get a hundred hands go up and then you've ruined your presentation because you've then got to spend an inordinate amount of time catering for the fact that you've asked that. So you've got to, you've got to adapt. And there are other things about culture like always being gracious and sometimes standing your ground as well because some cultural differences can make you feel a little bit intimidated but when i when i got to the end of this the seventh one was just believe in yourself i just thought actually the heading of this article is seven tips for presentations when you're overseas Remember these seven public speaking basics when presenting overseas. But my conclusion is, and it was the penny drop moment, and that's why I decided to include this article, and it's well worth reading. You would do this whether you were presenting in your own country or overseas. It's the absolute basics, a lot of this. I mean, number one, know your audience. You, only, you don't only find out about your audience if you're presenting overseas. If I'm presenting down the road in Musselburgh, I'll find out about the audience. If I'm presenting down in London, I'll find out about the audience. This is basic stuff. So what I came to the conclusion is read this article, not from the point of view it tells you what to do if you're traveling abroad, but basically it tells you what the absolute fundamental presentation 101 things are that you do before you even open PowerPoint. Yeah, and you know, as listening to you and reflecting on the title and and traveling and all those things, like you know, inviting the theater of the mind, it, it I think what this is this is a warning about complacency, and this is a warning about essentially on occasion being overconfident. And I think Joseph Lee was saying, um, just because, for example, you know, you are a, a, a UK public speaker and you do this in the UK, doesn't mean you can circumvent the list of things you've said. Um, so, so for me, it's also part of that. But as, as I'm listening to you, the, the other message that you know, I've explored on occasion in other segments is I, I don't think that currently there's enough exchange of information and dialogue mm. between the, the guest speaker and the organizers. Mm. I mean, I see for myself, you know, sometimes how hard it is to actually uh, get someone to even just give me some time on Zoom or another so I can ask them questions such as Liz from Joseph as well as a few others. So it's a warning to both, I think, the organizers and the speakers. Because conversely, if you have, if you're the organizer and you have speakers as you were coming from overseas, should you provide more information? Because, of course, you, you'll be making assumptions as well based on how comfortable your local um, speakers are. I mean, for, you know, for me, I remember actually um, one presentation where it was somebody that came from the US to the UK. And as we say, we are separated by a common language. And it was a wonderful way. He opened the uh, the presentation with a picture of himself inside a pub confused by the sheer um, choice and selection of beers and and basically i suspect you know the day before made up the opening story mm -hmm. that he would not potentially use with a u.s audience so back to what you're saying about arrive a little earlier if you can and see what you can do to absorb some of the local culture but there's nothing like you know a fish out of water story but a hero's journey on how you still present with confidence and at the end you can have a standing ovation absolutely right no all really good lessons for us to learn okay pascal let's move on and this is i know one of your favorite parts of the show this is where we have a look at marketing tech and apps mm -hmm. 
And in this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table marketing tech that's grabbed our attention over the last week and can make our lives as marketers easier and more creative. So, Pascal, tell us about your tech. Okay, so I've got two options, which is all to do with getting more value from your social media activities. Number one is actually from a scenario. Something that happened to myself and my clients last week, we were put together a proposal for them to win a big contract. And I know the suggestion would be good to have as almost an appendix uh, testimonials and and kind of thank you messages and and kind of uh, all sort of um, you know positive reviews from social media. I then realized that then I'd created so much work for the team because unfortunately I'd forgot to ask whether or not they kept a record of those things. So what then followed Roger with them spending hours and hours going through Twitter and scrolling down and through LinkedIn and through Facebook to find those positive messages. And I said, do you know what? There's going to be a better way. I mean, you can do it, you know, the, the kind of DIY way of screenshotting the, the positive messages, but then you, you're stuck, I suppose, if you want to, prove that it's a real message because you don't have necessarily the url and so on and i'd remember that i had come across a solution it took me a while but i was determined to find it and there is a solution called fame wall which has been developed by Fathom j help i pronouncing the name correctly and this is essentially a system you open an account you have a free plan which you can allow, allow you to try out and then you can pay for more facilities where you can literally copy and paste urls of those well-done messages and thank yous and testimonials and reviews so you have a record a centralized record record of all those tweets and Facebook posts and LinkedIn messages and so on in one central place so that you can use them to then carry over to a proposal or even better you can use the fame wall kind of code and embed those on your website you can have access to different styles from a grid layout from carousel to the normal wall that we know before you can even adjust some of the design to give it a star rating or that kind of you know quote marks type of design and it's something that um, was invented really by Fathom J because he needed a solution. He went around the interweb, couldn't find anything that he liked, so he went ahead and did it himself and now making it available to all of us. So if you are out there, you know, in a receipt, I'm sure you are, all of you, of well done messages and thank yous, save them because you'll need them as part of your social proofing. And then you've got the other side, which was essentially either proving to others that your social media activities are doing well, or sometimes just to understand, so, you know, which accounts do we have and how well is it doing? And just maybe having a bit of a, um overview statement. And again, you can do it manually for sure. But why don't you use something like Sparrow Charts, sparrowcharts.com. And essentially, it's uh, using AI, but the right way to produce very simple, very light in design, very easy to follow by non-marketers, dashboard reports on your social media activities. You can link essentially your MailChimp, your uh, active campaign, so that's the email. You can link your Facebook, even the adverts. You can link your LinkedIn company page, calling for them to link to link the personal page. You can link your Twitter, your Instagram, your YouTube to essentially either PowerPoint, Google Slide, even PDF, and you have essentially this great-looking, elegant dashboard that can give you a snapshot view of, you know, sometime once you want to know about the follow account or the reach or the engagement, or you want to go granular and look monthly. 
And currently people put together things into Excel and then they try and force their way into maybe something like Canva or another. And this will essentially do it for you automatically. This is really good stuff, isn't it? And um, I love the first one because I, I, I've always tried to keep, um, mm. I mean, it's a, just a Word document that I, I just copy and paste positive stuff into. Because let's face it, when if somebody makes a negative comment about something that we do or a critical comment, we always agonize about that particular comment, don't we? And we often forget about all the great comments that we've had. Um almost to to the exclusion of the negative ones. So it's always good to have these positive things in place so that you can review them. If you are feeling a bit down about your business or you're feeling a bit um, got at by a negative comment. So I, I really like these ideas. Um, this week, I wanted to talk about research, Pascal. Um, and this was prompted very, very briefly by the the show, The Apprentice. Um, and, and I even did a very quick um, um, five minutes um, on my own podcast about this. But an episode of The, of the um, uh, Apprentice recently just reinforced to me the importance of research. And we said it just before in the content spotlight, knowing your audience before you go and do a speech learn about your audience whichever country they might be in and i just realized that one of the reasons why the people on the apprentice tv show fail so often is they're not given the opportunity in the structure of the show to research the audience that they're tasked to go away and create a product for and it just made me realize these days we don't hear people talking about research a half as much as we should do. And again, I just wonder whether that's one of the reasons why so many campaigns fail, or why so many products fail, because people aren't putting the importance on research. Now, of course, research can happen at the very start of a product development cycle or the very start of a marketing campaign, but also you can make sure that that research goes on during the, um, the the rollout and you'll refine your product and you'll refine your process and you'll refine your campaign as time goes on. And it just prompted me to start having a look at some of the um, uh, cost-effective methods that you can undertake research. Now, funnily enough, um, I'm, I'm involved in a conference at the moment which is putting together a research platform to uh, look at the retirement market in the United Kingdom, and it's looking like the budget for those questions um, being sent out to an audience of between five and 10,000 could run into 40 to 50 grand of cost so research isn't cheap, which is possibly one of the reasons why smaller businesses don't do it. But there are ways to do it. And these two platforms are well worth having a look at. Everybody will have heard of the first one, SurveyMonkey. It's been around for as long as I can remember. It's still one of the best. It's still one of the most cost-effective. It now has so many more features than it had the last time I looked at it. And the last time I looked at it was probably only about 18 months ago, but it's got more and more features. And as its name would suggest, it, you can create research surveys. You can create questionnaires. Those surveys could be about new products. They could be about, you know, somebody's um, visited your restaurant and it's just a survey to ask them to fill in to find out what they've thought i went on a train to london yesterday i got an email from lner afterwards asking me what i thought about the um experience 
it could well be that their that survey was powered by something like survey monkey survey monkey will give you the flexibility and the power to create those sorts of surveys so it's well worth having a look at but then one completely left of field that i came across is called video ask now it's a bit like survey monkey but they've tried to weave video into it so that it looks as if you're actually having a proper conversation with an actual person rather than just filling in a form and i had a look at the website and i actually like what i see it did remind me of something else that I've, that we've reviewed on the show before called loom where you actually use videos to send people like a, a 90 second video if you want to ask them a question or something like that but this is all more about survey so it's got some of the flexibility and some of the uh style of survey monkey but there's a much more um focus on using video to engage people and i'm all for that engagement now i think it, it it's possibly harder to do because if you start asking people questions and you use videos you maybe start having to create videos depending upon what the answers might be and it can maybe it can get a little bit uh, overwhelming but as a platform i liked what i saw so what i thought would be quite interesting was just tell us what your favorite research platforms are. I'm sure everybody who's listening to the show or watching the show will have heard of, will have used or are using SurveyMonkey. It's just, it's just in, it's just there, isn't it? But video ask is a new way of doing things and it intrigues me. And I'd love to know anybody out there who's been using it successfully. Just give us your feedback. I'd love to hear a little bit more about it because I was quite intrigued by what I saw. Oh, thank you very much. You know, I was reflecting on what you were saying. It it may well be that I would agree with you, the lack of effort and budgeting in terms of time and 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 money in research. Is it because actually people are under the impression that they know enough about the audience? Excuse me, yeah. because they're on social media and they have this maybe this feeling of, well, we're connected. We 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 know what, what's going on just because of the reaction, the likes and comments on social media, but that's not enough to allow you to make an informed decision about the, the, the evolution of your product design and your marketing. And, and for me, we need to also accept, to your point, that SurveyMonkey has been around for us. So that, that online surveys have been around for a very long time. So what would be your version what you're going to do in terms of an experience, particularly for the before, should you make it more like an exclusive club where you are invited, you know, invitation only uh, surveying? But also for me, the real turnoff is the automation throughout. So you, you get an email, you click on the link, you fill the survey, you get an automated reply, well done, uh, thank you. And you don't hear that there's a lack of you need to humanize, I think, the whole survey experience for people to want to do it, I, I reckon. Yeah, no, it's it's good. And again, it goes back to the article I did as content spotlight in the last episode. One of the mistakes marketers make is almost superimposing their own views over what they think their customers want so if i like red cars i'll just assume everybody likes red cars mm. but they probably don't but i because i like red cars i can make the mistake of assuming that everybody does so pascal this is the time in the show where we fire up the flux capacitor we set the controls of the tardis and we head back in time should we do this week in history 
1905, the radio fax is patented in the US by Cornelius Eret of Rosamond, what a wonderful name, who called his invention a system for transmitting intelligence. However, faxing did not become a practical mode of communication until the 1920s. In 1930, the Turkish cities Constantinople and Angora changed their names to Istanbul and Ankara. Wow, and in 1988, Beetlejuice, the fantasy horror comedy film directed by Tim Burton, opens in the US. The movie eventually grossed $75 million in North America for an initial budget of $15 million. Wow, and in 1989, Pixar wins an Academy Award for Tin Toy, the first entirely computer-animated work to win in the Best Animated Short Film category. Wow. So, Pascal, have you ever been to Turkey? I have. I've had the pleasure of working for a Turkish tour operator, my younger days as a marketing officer, and went to Istanbul three times, I think, for work. Wow. Now, I've never been to Turkey. It's one of those countries that fascinates me. I don't know why I've never been. It's definitely on the list. And Istanbul itself, again, as always fascinated me such a bustling but beautiful city and obviously the is it the bosphorus i think goes through the center of that mm. huge huge river um now it's iconic in so many different ways and it's appeared in so many different films as well funnily enough uh we just watched um, from russia with love this week the second james bond film which is predominantly set in istanbul and that film is nearly 60 years old pascal and yet the cinematography and the city looks absolutely stunning, even in that film. Uh, I think they could do with um, uh, maybe re re remastering the print, to be perfectly honest, of the version that we've got. But it absolutely looks gorgeous. And it, it just ignited that thought in my head of the change of the name from Constantinople to Istanbul. Because I actually thought Constantinople was the <laughs> phenomenal name for a city i mean if you had a city called constantinople why on earth would you want to change it it's just one of the most amazing names ever but i imagine there's some sort of uh, cultural reason em emperor constantine etc etc you might know a bit more about that than i do um but i just think that that this part of the world is iconic in so many different ways, a centre of trade, a centre of culture. So many films have been shot there. Um, and there's also a famous song about this as well, isn't there? Istanbul, no Constantinople, no, it's Istanbul. I don't know, maybe I've made that made that up. But what's your take on Constantinople becoming Istanbul, having oh, been well, that travel you're, person? You're asking, someone's going to be very biased because <laughs> I had wonderful, wonderful trips to Istanbul. And you know what is interesting about, so I was working with Turkish Tour Operator, I was working closely with the Turkish Stories Board as well. So I, I, I can thank them because that's when I got into video production as well. That's when I went to PR, um, escorting journalists to Istanbul to write reviews in newspapers and so on. And one thing I, I loved about the, the, the Turkish Stories Board in Istanbul, that the marketing was spot on in so much as it was truthful. So everything you hear and everything people have told you about Istanbul is correct. It is that beautiful. It is that essentially enthralling. And there is no um, kind of uh, exaggeration. It's not bloated on purpose to get you there, which I think is, is just amazing. The Blue Mosque is, you know, the market is. You've got to get up in the morning to see the sunrise and, and stay in for the sunset and so on. You've, you've got to experience that and, and the wonderful the wonderful culture. But the reason why it's fascinating 
Um, because I'd forgotten about um Ankara um, being on Gora previously, but the one about Istanbul and you. And what is interesting when um, you talk to the locals and so on, for them it was a desire to move away from the past. Mm. So because Constantinople was linked to the Emperor Constantine and with all the historical thing that comes with it, there was a desire for Turkey as a society to um, move on with the times. And and you will know, of course, of one of the many, many um, kind of figures, Kemalata Turk did a lot of things, decision, for example, to um, adopt, you know, our, the alphabet uh, and known to us to adopt different currencies and so on so that they can, they could trade with, with the world. But what is fascinating that Istanbul came actually from the local population and their own kind of um, vernacular and way to name the city. So what I love about it in the context of a marketing podcast is that the audience basically led, you know, the um the, the authorities to reach a conclusion that Istanbul or Istanbul, as it was called more locally at the time, was was a good move. But it was inspired by essentially the the, the population uh, using mm-hmm. the term mm-hmm. more than anything more scientific than that, which is what wow. I think is wonderful. Wow. And um, when I put together um, the second news item for this one for my for me. The Pixar winning an Academy Award for Tin Toy. I actually misread the news item first, and my brain didn't see <laughs> Tin Toy. My brain saw Toy Story, and I and I think I actually had a double take when I went and read it again, because I thought, oh, of course they won the Academy Award for Toy Story, and that was the first entirely animated film. But of course, I was wrong. Tell me about Tin Toy. Yeah, no. So, so, what is fascinating is that that's what can happen when people forget about the past and mm. the sense of where have you come from, so we know where where you're going. And therefore, before you could get to the point where Toy Story could be produced and you get the financiers behind you. By the way, um, quick shout out to Roger and I. We review the marketing of Toy Story. Um, in one of the previous episodes, you've got to have prototypes. You have to try things out. You've got to hone your skill. And short form, to me, is is logical, but it seems to be also logical in the world of film production. So Tintor was was a proof of concept, really. Yeah. I'm absolutely convinced that the creator would have been happy with just being nominated, but to win the award, then you can use that. So I can link him back to what we're saying about testimonials <laughs> and reviews and so on. So you've got to use that as now your calling card to say, well, what what else could we do now? Where else can, can we take it? But you have to be patient because 89 and 95, that's six years though, before you can come back and present to the world uh, essentially the fully realized vision and, and to be essentially a brand that everybody knows around the world. No, that's a really good lesson. And again, one of the main reasons why we do This Week in History, because we do owe a massive debt to all this work that went on in the past that allows us to benefit from all the things that we have here in the present. Okay, Pascal, let's move on. We've got some creators to shout out. Okay, Pascal, who are you giving a shout out to this week? 
Now, listen, you know I love new beginnings. I'm a big romantic at heart when it comes to content creation. So it gives me immense pleasure to give Mark Orr and Dan Wilkinson a well-deserved shout-out. Both video producers and video consultants, they are also the co-hosts of a brand-new live video series, Livestream Rebels. I think maybe there's some Star Wars um, connotation here. I need to check with them in the very, very near future. So... What is really interesting about all of this and the reason why we have this segment is because we're looking for inspiration, not just in terms of the activity of producing content, but finding your voice, finding your style. This is what we need to do. And what is really interesting about Mark and Dan is that, yes, they are live streaming uh, consultants and, and producers that can help you with your event. Yes, they know things. But what they've chosen to do is not to share with you what you should do together with live stream, but they're going to show you what they have done and how they do it. And therefore, they tell you the full story from start to finish. And in episode one, and I put the link in the show notes, they share not only of course, their passion and wisdom when it comes to live streaming, they share the story of a recent NHS conference from start to finish. So literally, the setup, what they had to do, some of the, uh, they had to deal, for example, with an expected event, such as a speaker couldn't make it because of transport issues. And they had to literally on the day turn it to a more of a hybrid event and so on. And using their skills, there'd be no chat GPT prompts for that, I tell you right now. And it was absolutely pleasure to listen to experts calmly, simply talk about not just what you should do, but also let's show you how we've done it and perhaps you can learn from us. And the other thing as well that was important when Mark kind of uh, opened the live stream, he was talking about this is not going to be perfect. This is our first one. We're going to discover, you know, how we're going to go with this show. So there's an element of sincerity. But they were saying, you know, we didn't want to wait for perfection. We just thought this information is important to you, to others, and you know, that's what we, we have to do. So I think it's also a very, very strong message. So Marco and Dal Wilkinson, the very best of luck with Livestream Rebels. Fantastic. Yeah, good. I, I remember I've met Mark a, a few times at various Newcastle events. I'm not sure I've met Dan before, but yeah, absolutely great. Well done and good luck with that. My shout out is actually the second time I've shouted out this uh, this um, person, but Elise Coverdo is a, a lady that I met Funnily enough, in Montenegro, we were talking about that earlier on. She posted something on LinkedIn and tagged me into it. And it was another of those sort of mic drop moments for me, sort of epiphany moments. But basically, Elise told this story about how recently she'd been talking to somebody. I think it was potentially about a speech at a conference. And she was told by somebody that she was getting too old to talk about tech. She was getting too old to be seen as somebody who knows what they're talking about when it comes to tech. Now, actually, um, Elise has been um, an ambassador for companies like Huawei in the past, so she does know her tech. But she was she was obviously taken a bit aback by this. And she tagged me and m many other, other of her um, uh, friends into this this. Uh, uh, post to say have you had a similar experience and, and i think we pretty much all have i'm sure you have as well i've had it suggested to me recently or oh, you're getting too old to be talking about this and i think that you have to stop and think and, and and there's a bit of weaving in some of the things we said earlier on in here that it takes a long time to build expertise you can't build expertise in a few months it takes time and with age does come that wisdom that we talked about before with the likes of Bill Gates and the experience to get wisdom 
does take its time. And I answered um, Elise's um, post by saying, I'm actually a Gen X in terms of generation. And if you look at the the, the standard profile from a, of a Gen X is a little bit tech phobic. Indeed, you resist new technology, which is completely opposite to what I've been. I've always <laughs> loved, I've always loved new technology. I was playing on the the science teachers' research machines three eighty Z at school when I was, um, you know, and and staying behind after school to play on this computer because I loved it so much. I've always embraced new stuff like social media, tech, and the apps, and all of this sort of thing, videos, and all of this. You know, we, we we've shared a lot of these experiences together, Pascal, and I really realize that the reason is that I've always been curious. I've been curious about computers. I've been curious about new apps. I've been curious about video and how it works. I've been curious about storytelling. And I've always asked questions and I've always wanted to know the answers. And the conclusion I put into my reply to Elise was that if you're curious, then you can become an expert in something because that natural curiosity will lead you to become an expert, will lead you to be able to find things out. And I don't believe that you can ever grow out of being curious. You'll never be too old to be curious. And if you remain curious, then these people that say, you're too old to talk about technology, you're too old to talk about marketing, it's all bullshit. The curiosity is what gives you the authority to talk about that so elise you have really given me uh, um, i'm going to write an article about this eventually and you'll get full credit for for uh, for making me think about this but it's curiosity that gives you the authority do you, you know, agree oh, <laughs> completely yeah. and what an outrageous comment to make to anyone oh. uh, very very quickly in one of my kind of um, public addresses i have a moment at the very very start because you and i now are reaching the point where we face an audience which is almost can be across three generations now literally um so i have this fun moment where i've got this um slide which has an animation saying the 80s were the best with some kind of really corny 80s music <laughs> and i ask anybody that was around the 80s to stand up so they do whilst the music is playing when the chaos kind of uh, you know it comes down a bit people who are sat down clearly are well very young people and yeah. i addressed them that said look around the room because thanks to us <laughs> myself in that you're in a position to do what you're doing on TikTok. So what do you have to say? So they, you know, they, they, they play the game along and they say thank you. And then I said, I turned to people who are in the eighties. The message to the younger people is don't mess it up because I think that's <laughs> also why people um, share this outrageous comment to Elise, which is they have no sense of history. And and of course, you're not going to claim that the eighties were the best. <laughs> Absolutely right. All that fabulous music music, hairstyles, and <laughs> short shoulder pads. Great stuff. So let's move on, Pascal. We've been, I've been waiting for this all the way through the recording. It's finally time for us to talk about this week's film. Let's move on to film marketing. Well, this week we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, just had its premiere in London yesterday, the day before recording episode 97 of Two Geeks and the Marketing Podcast. Let's have a look at the trailer. What is that? Ah! 
we're facing the greatest evil the world has ever known. He's executing our people. This is unlike anything we've ever seen. What's trying to kill us this time? Pretty much everything. The magic is on a whole other level. We're outmatched. How are we gonna defeat them? I know what to do. I can ask corpses five questions and then they go back to being dead. Perlamon Tergatis. Maybe I'm not saying it right. Yuck. Wonderful. Were you killed in battle? Yes. Great. Four more questions, right? Yes. No, 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 that, that wasn't for you. Did that count as a question? Yes. Damn it. Only answer when I talk to you, okay? Yes. Why did you say okay at the end of that? I didn't. Fantastic. Where's the shovel? Oh, Pascal, Pascal, talking about the 1980s. I spent so much time in the 1980s playing Dungeons and Dragons, one of the original, if not the original, role-playing games. You know, all of those dice that we used to have, two-sided dice, <laughs> ten-sided dice, 20-sided dice, good old-fashioned six-sided dice, D6, we used to call it D6 yeah, and course, D20 yeah. and all of that sort of thing, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Monster Manual, and all of those scenarios. We would spend hours and hours and hours and hours in people's um, living rooms or in people's bedrooms or sat around people's dining room tables playing Dungeons and Dragons. And here we have a film. Now, I know very little about this film. You've chosen it. And oh, we have I, know, to. <laughs> I know you're going to be, I know you're as excited as I am, but I know very little about the film. Now, I have a preconceived idea in my head as to if I was to make a film about Dungeons and Dragons, because my experience of Dungeons and Dragons is that it's a game that we played and in playing it, we create this fantasy world of, of orcs and hobbits and, and wizards and, and all of that sort of thing. In my head, a film about Dungeons and Dragons would require the film to start off with normal people like you and I sat around a dining room table playing this game and then getting sucked in somehow. Is that what we're going to see, or is is it more like we're just going to get thrown straight into a Lord of the Rings style world? The, the, latter, the latter, and happily, happily so. You know what <laughs> others have called the Jumanji curse, because I think it's asking too much of an audience to be into different worlds, mm. and and because we have so much to cover in marketing, I'm going to keep my answers very, very short. <laughs> but what I will say is, so you and I have heard about the movie being in production, as I mentioned when we began the recording this episode, since the summer 2021. In the middle of the pandemic, you and I saw news. Well, two things were happening. Closer to you, in Barbara Castle, they were filming the uh, next Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, yeah. And further south, closer to me, in Annie Castle, they were, they were filming Dungeons and & Dragons. And I nearly fell off my chair. <laughs> but then, since then, I've spent pretty much the last two years it's torn between anguish at a disaster of a movie and, of course, you know, the, the real desire to have a wonderful time because Dungeons and Dragons is an adventure movie whereby my memory is laughing 
and laughing and laughing with my friends because ultimately it's all about solving riddles. It's all about you know, a heist into a dungeon or a cave where you make the best led plans. But of course, at the roll of a D20, everything can go very, very wrong. Mm. And then chaos and Susan. And so I was thinking, well, are we going to have, sadly, like there's been three attempts to date at making official Dungeons and Dragons movies. And they've not been particularly successful because it's such people don't know about them. And the reason for that is they are far, far too serious. Mm. And the experience of playing the game with his family, friends, and that kind of things is literally a truly joyous moment when you immerse yourself in the world of storytelling, a world of fantasy, of course, and you can enact um, you know, the, the characters you've chosen to do and so on. And it's been around as part of popular culture since the mid-70s. It peaked in the early 80s, which is where you and I picked it up, really, uh, edition two, and has carried on ever since. It's on the sixth edition now as a game. But, of course, role-playing games will exist for all franchises, including James Bond. Um, you can be a werewolf fighting vampires. You can do anything that, essentially, you imagine it would allow you to do. So filmmaking should be a good kind of medium for that. But to date, it's never worked. Perhaps this is the one. Perhaps this is the one. Now, I, I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, I'm just thinking back now, and it was making me smile. There are a number of occasions I remember playing D&D &D or RuneQuest or something oh, like yeah, that, which, Rune was, Quest, which yes. was similar, where we were absolutely wetting ourselves with hysteria. Almost, I remember there was one time, and I can't even remember what had happened and what the joke was or what somebody did. Something funny happened as a result of a dice being thrown. And we, I was quite literally doubled up in pain because I was laughing so much. We were, <laughs> and, and yeah, if those original iterations of the film failed because they didn't embrace the humour, then hopefully that is why this film might succeed because I, I know from the uh, the trailer and also from the the reviews that i've read so far that the the humor is there the humor is there and the feedback has been um, absolutely amazing much my relief so i think for me uh, from a marketing point of view they, they they had a very very interesting challenge mm. they had to on one hand appease dnd dnd fans like you and i but they had to then appeal to non-gamers, people who you know just essentially didn't really engage with that particular leisure activity, mm. and easier said than done, I, I reckon. And I can't wait to study with you what they've been up to. So the because of course of the gift of the internet, we were able to access a lot of information. I felt like I was uh, holding uh, literally a bag of holdings for all the ND players, where I kept putting my hand in, and each time I could retrieve you know some amazing information. <laughs> so um, we're very lucky because it just started, so we have access to official websites. Yay! Um, I was able to compare the US international website to the UK to the French one. Interestingly, all websites seem to be managed and created by a company called Power based mm -hmm. in London and Los Angeles. And this looks to me like a UK company. So perhaps um, not to you and I to maybe invite them one day to mm -hmm. talk about, you know, what, what it takes. And then, yeah, of course, all, all the social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and the occasional uh, Snapchat as well. So because of the sheer volume of, of information, I gave myself the brief to only, sadly, because of time constraint, look at the international campaign yeah. of Dungeons & Dragons. We may on occasion make reference, as we've done with the premiere in London, of what's been happening in all the past. But just as a learning point with regard to uh, this campaign, all three websites had a different look and feel. 
mm-hmm. interestingly, even though the platform is very different. They had their own kind of hashtag, a very easy one, hashtag DND movie, which then auto-generated a, a little kind of um, um, emoji of a mimic. If you don't know what the mimic is, you have to go and see the film <laughs> and enjoy you know, what that is. But it all began once, you know, as in the official kind of endeavors outside of the media covering the making of, it all began really for all of us internationally on 21st of April, 2022, with the title announcement. So it was a very, very short video whereby, you know, you had a bit of music and a bit of ambiance and the Dungeons and Dragons official logo appeared and then the title, Honor Among Thieves, um, appeared. Something that we've seen done with Rings of Power mm-hmm. and a few other uh, TV series. And the kind of caption, if you will, was our campaign begins. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was lovely because, of course, that's what the campaign is going to be all about. You could either see it as a D&D campaign yeah. or as a marketing campaign, which I thought was just a lovely yeah. little touch. No, that's, that's that, I mean, again, that's, uh, I probably haven't even thought of a D&D campaign until just <laughs> then, but that's what we used to call them. You know, the dungeon master who who runs the game creates a campaign, doesn't it? It's it's Rick Nettleton's campaign. <laughs> yeah, love it. That's a fabulous play on words, Pascal. No problem. So f- then we, you can tell us about the next teaser that came up a bit later. Yeah, now this was July, the 21st of July, 2022, and teaser poster, very, very stylish. Um, mm. Basically, you've got this dragon motif, fire-breathing dragon motif, and then the shadows, the sort of silhouettes of the um, of the uh, five protagonists, the five thieves, I guess. Uh, and that's it, pretty much. The names of the um, of the stars. Obviously, Chris Pine is the one that everybody will recognise um, as uh, the guy who played um, Jim Kirk in the Star Trek revival films. But of course, Hugh Grant's in this as well. Um, now. <laughs> This, I was going to say, you always associate Hugh Grant in either one of two roles, don't you? He's either the sort of um, uh, romantic rom-com type for Four Weddings and a Funeral or Notting Hill or Love Actually, that sort of, uh, sort of um, you know, nice bloke gets the girl sort of thing. Or more recently, he started playing very quite scarily villains, know, isn't yeah. he? Uh, and his 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 villain acting is actually quite scary. And and I know he was in Paddington as a as a villain as well. So I'm absolutely intrigued to uh, see what he's going to be like in this. But yeah, that poster is very striking, and I would have that on my wall. Absolutely, and you have the, the silhouettes, you know, yeah. of of the main characters. And now fans. Obviously, we're saying, well, which one is which? Is Chris Pine this one and this one? But they didn't have to wait too long because the same day, the first official trailer came out, which I must have watched about 50 times. But I have to say, I did raise an eyebrow, and I was a bit concerned back to this idea of, you know, please don't mess it up, you know, for the fourth time with the use of the Led Zeppelin sound uh, music, you know, a whole lot, <laughs> lot of love. What, what did, you, did you make of the inclusion of, of that particular song? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I've never really been a massive Led Zeppelin fan, right. to be perfectly honest, <laughs> apart from Stairway to Heaven, which I guess everybody loves. Um, I, I, again, I, I always think that music has to fit. Uh, what that I only tend to get cross in films when they use music that's anachronistic. 
So, for example, if you set a film in the 1960s, you can't play 80s music in the in the film. Now, if you're in a fantasy setting like this, in my head, you should probably not be using any sort of contemporary music because it, it would it would never have played out in that world. But I can see, you know, music makes the world go round. I love music to death. And I probably felt a little bit against this because of Led Zeppelin, and I'm not a Led Zeppelin fan, but I can see that it would appeal to some people. But I think you've got to be very, very careful when you put music into a film like this that is contemporary when this film isn't really about the the world we live in. Yeah, I mean, for me, I was hoping for, you know, Herrick fantasy soundtrack. Mm. I wanted to be taken to, to the world as I felt with Lord of the Rings and many others. With a few rewatching, of course, studying the marketing campaign, I said, well, maybe that's when they decided to agree that they had to play to two audiences, you know, the D&D fans and the general public. Yeah. Um, I think when you watch it with the montage, the action scene, and the one-liners and so on. It, 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 I kind of warm to it. Um, but also, I'm now realizing this may be a little Easter egg about a secondary storyline about Chris Pine's character uh, seeking love. So yeah. Yeah, there could be a lot of things there, but uh, I thought it was a brave, brave decision because um, I was even thinking, well, are they trying to suggest that? Because one thing we know from interviews that the, the creators have been very respectful of the game from its origin all the way to its current um, iteration. I was thinking, well, if you were a player when it first um, you know, was launched by TSR in the 70s, perhaps it would have been the music playing in the background in your bedroom, as you were saying, when you're playing with your mates. But take us on to the um, second poster reveal, please. Well, the second poster, obviously, you get to see the characters. Right. Um, I, 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 this is a theme that, for me, is developing over doing more and more of these film marketing segments. I'm really liking campaigns like this where there's an ensemble cast and you get that contrast between a poster like this, which features them all. So obviously we've got all the actors we spoke <laughs> about before in costume and it's beautiful colors and, and there's, there's images of the worlds in the background as well. Fantastic, absolutely gorgeous, but also like the ability that they can then move on to do individual character posters and individual character spots. And we've seen that so many times in film marketing now, Pascal, Death on the Nile, Lord of the Rings. It's just a great way of marketing and a great way of focusing in on individuals and ensembles at the same time. So that second poster, again, absolutely gorgeous, completely different to the teaser. It's like the teaser almost explodes into this one, doesn't it? Mm. And, I mean, you're right, and there's so much detail that the fan could study, particularly the, the lower third with the, the town, where is it? Is it part of, of the official um, kind of um, you know storyline and it is interesting this is the art artwork that is used currently on the French website mm -hmm. then we had to be a little patient you know as fans because they kept teasing more content but we, we had access on the 5th of December to a two-minute featurette which is almost thinking well we've given people a lot of information a lot of teaser to avoid almost uh, misunderstanding and to control you know rumors let's share a bit more about 
what's been driving us, how we've approached the film and so on. And I think that was very wise to do so, you know, the, the uh, where the actors and the, and the creators could talk to camera. And that was uh, uh, pretty much on the same day as well. Uh, that's interesting. And I've noticed now they do a poster and a video reveal on the same day. That's what they seem to have done so far. Yeah. And then the next one is another character poster with all, all the... Um the characters there interestingly enough uh chris pine is playing a liar or a, <laughs> a, 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 a an old-fashioned uh, guitar he actually looks a bit like he could be in led zeppelin doesn't he so maybe that's the uh maybe that's the link there actually just thinking back again you know quite a lot of 70s prog rock bands like led zeppelin and emerson lake and palmer and genesis in their early days their songs were very much inspired by fantasy they were very much yeah by by tolkien and stuff so maybe there's a link there i i don't know that's a beautiful one that was used for the international website and what is interesting another kind of dnd in joke the the bard you know as a class was always the one that people hated playing because it was so hard to play yeah because you needed to know enough about music and poetry to really give the character you know, a justice. And, and I do believe that, that the bar as a class was given like a new lease of life thanks to people like Critical Role and the others who played it well mm -hmm. and it was very amusing. But I think, is that interesting that Chris Pine is who's, um, I think, the lead character with regard to the band of thieves. He didn't go for, you know, the fighter, didn't go for the paladin, you know, those he went for, the bard. So I think we're going to see some a lot of humour in this because ultimately, apart from charisma and good communication skill, he can't fight. Um, <laughs> able to talk his way out of problems. Pascal, there's just so much stuff here. So much stuff here. I know you, as you said, you, you it really enjoyed it and you went down a rabbit hole digging out all these fabulous visuals so tell 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 me we probably haven't got time to go through each no, one individually but tell me tell me in a nutshell what you think about all of this stuff that you've discovered so so to me it was back to this idea of appeasing the dnd fans and appealing to a wider audience but we didn't know we didn't know and so they carried on with the character reveal they carried on with the trailers and so on but the date that really transformed the the um I suppose, you know, the, 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 the appeal was the 10th of March when the world premiere took place at the South Pass Southwest Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And the critics went wild. The fans went wild. I could breathe again because I realized now that we had we had an amazing movie. And since the 10th of March, it's never stopped now. And they carried on sharing a bit more in terms of what they've done. But more importantly, of course, they had the premieres both in Paris, which was uh, two days ago, and London was yesterday. And I guess they're going to have a premiere in the US very, very soon. Um, so listen, you know, what I think we should do now from a learning point of view is talk about how they split the campaign then between the gamers and the, the non-gamers. So as a summary in terms of how they got the gamers excited, we would expect that they would do that. It was a year ago, so they're still not, you know, revealed. They had a tavern opened at the San Diego Comic-Con. Of course she would, because another D&D in-joke, most um, adventurers met in a tavern, <laughs> in at, the the tavern. <laughs> at the start of a game. They had um, ARVR filters, you know, for mobile phone. People could pretend to be a... Uh, 
you know, a paladin, they could pretend to be a barbarian or a bard if they just do so. Of course, they had um, book prequels because that is something that we've seen a lot. And there is a great, great um, book reading community around D&D. They have live Q&As full of humor and so on. But the one that, of course, they had to do, they released the official character sheets on the... Um, D&D Beyond official website. So if you wanted to either meet the characters of the movie as NPCs or play them, you could download the official character sheets and have their scores and, and have a game. And in a, in a way, that's probably the one thing that they haven't done as part of this campaign for the gamers. They haven't released an official, if you like, scenario that people um, can play. And they use a number of influences, of course, throughout um, from Critical Role to uh, the nerdies to screen rent and so on as well. So so the gamers were well looked after and that was about appeasing them. What did they do, Roger, to attract the general public? I guess, Pascal, the, 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 the campaign to the public just focuses more in on the story, more in on the characters, more in on the action, more in on the humours. Obviously, in Super Bowl, back in February, there was a 30-second teaser. Um, very exciting, and that's obviously... Um, went out to the whole world massive audience there but it's the this the usual sort of let's let's start working with people so you've got the early screenings for amazon prime us subscribers going to certain uh, cinemas to see the film we've got lots of stuff going on, on on twitter but the thing that i just wanted to focus on here and and you very kindly I was, it was a lovely surprise last saturday to get an email with a link to actually go and see this film. And Trisha and I are going to see Dungeons and Dragons tomorrow, courtesy of yourself. So thank you very much for that. And I'll report back on the next episode what we actually think of the film. But this was in conjunction with Medi Cinema, which is a UK charity, which I know you're very supportive of. And it's a special screening of the film for that charity. So you just tell me a little bit more about how that works. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, to begin with, yeah, all proceeds will go to Medicinema, who are essentially a charity, independent charity. Patrons are um, Nick Frost as well as uh, Simon Pegg. And they build and manage cinemas within hospitals with the conviction, which I totally agree, that the world of cinema, movie magic, will make patients, families, and yeah. actually staff feel better and recuperate better. And someone who spent a year and a half in the hospital um, when I was younger with cancer, and we had a TV um, in our room, which made the whole the whole world of difference, I would assure you. Made the cinema is very important to me. So whilst I have to wait till the 12th of April, being in France, <laughs> um, you know, premieres such as this one with many other brands and charities are happening um, as we speak. And yeah, I'm so pleased that you get to see it tomorrow. And there's a lot of teasing going on still, isn't there? Even though the film's out, you know, the, they, they tease the the closing credits song, Winds yes. of Time, um, again. That's that's quite interesting. Uh, I love that uh, some, some other uh, recognisable UK comedians and stars are teasing the film as well. I love this one. Um, Sue Perkins records Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves audio description and she says I got very lucky with this dice roll and again <laughs> it's that whole point of campaign isn't it and the the, the subtle, that that works really nicely because it, you know, the, the public wouldn't probably catch on what that means but here we're saying oh it's all about the dice it's all about D6, D20 and all of that sort of thing. So even with the public campaign 
focusing i'm thinking much more on the the fact that this is an action movie this is a fun movie this is a um a fantasy movie but it's got you know it's got fabulous locations it's got fabulous characters it's even the public campaign still has these little hints that it's based upon the game that we loved from the 1980s mm. And, and this amount of respect and, and love for the game um, is, is so apparent. And 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 I think generally you don't have to have played D and D to be able to enjoy this as a family, as a group of friends, and so on. Because literally, I think the acting is going to be spot on. Um, there's going to be uh, you're going to laugh all the way through as if you were around the table. But also, um, many people have praised the practical special effects. So there's a lot of practical special effects. Um, the, the decor, maybe so often I have to say I've recognized Annie Castle. So it takes me <laughs> out of, of the world a little bit, but that's fine. You know, it's, it's very, very brief. And I think there's going to be surprises because whilst, you know, with the Martin campaign, the trailers have revealed a hell of a lot. I reckon there's still plenty for people to, to, to enjoy. So, um, yeah, uh, for me, you know, when we created Two Geeks and Martin podcast all those years ago now, and we wanted to bring the 80s and popular culture into the world of marketing and tech and games and movies, but to be in a position now to talk about a D&D movie, that's quite special. Yeah, it is. And and finally, I think uh, I just noticed that, um, you know, we've got the likes of Mr. Beast promoting this on his youtube channel and you know we know that mr beast is i think he's the biggest youtuber in the world now he's got correct multiple millions of followers i've not looked at his follow account for for a while but i think the last time i i looked at it was it, it was north of 12 million so he's you know he is a, a genuine influencer so he will if they're using him to promote the film and he's been doing some pranks pranks hosted by mr beast and i also quite like the fact that he's called mr beast and i'm sure there's going to be quite a few beasts in the film as well and there's a tie-in with Fortnite as well yes. um so um actually i have to say there was an update to Fortnite went through yesterday but i've not played it yet today so it'll be interesting to see whether there's any um uh, content appeared in the uh, in the latest update there so yeah i i am looking forward to seeing this both from the point of view or i think i think this is interesting that we've looked at this from the point of view of the fans but also the public yeah. i'm going to see this film as both tomorrow wow so, so is isn't that isn't that what will probably happen to you as well because there will be the old 1980s game, a part of Pascal Fintoni that wants to enjoy this film with that hat on. I Correct. played this game when I was growing up. I still play this game now um, in, in the modern world, but you'll also just want to go to the cinema as an, as a normal person. If that doesn't, if that doesn't sound too insulting and be entertained purely by a good film. So I think that both of us are going to go to the cinema in two guises as a D&D player and as a member of the public which is exactly how this marketing campaign has been framed superb thank you very much Roger <laughs> well that was another absolutely action-packed episode um we've covered so much ground today and so much really good content I've really enjoyed going through that and as we've said can't wait to see that film tomorrow and i will report back thank you everybody for watching two geeks and a marketing podcast episode 97 thank you also if you were listening to the show we really do appreciate it we'd love your feedback as well and you can leave us feedback by putting a comment on the youtube channel you can 
talk to us on Twitter. You can even leave us a message on SpeakPipe. So until the next episode, thank you all so much once again. Go out there, make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Thank you.